Welcome to the Theory to Action podcast, where we examine the timeless treasures of wisdom from the great books in less time to help you take action immediately and ultimately to create and lead a flourishing life. Now, here's your host, David Kaiser. Hello, I am David, and welcome back to another Mojo Minute. So this week is Christmas week. So our next two Mojo Minutes will lead us up to the birth of the Christ child. And so for this week's episodes, I thought we would look back and see how we arrived here with all the traditions that surround Christmas and give us such sweet memories down through the ages. And to do so, let's kick this special Christmas week episode off with a story. Quote, in Patera, there lived a family that had fallen on hard times. They had once been wealthy, but misfortunes had overtaken them. And now they were so poor that they barely had enough to live on. The father had tried to find work, but when people saw his soft hands, which had never known any kind of hard labor, they took him to be lazy and turned him away. The man had three daughters of marriageable age, but their chances of finding husbands were grim since the father could offer no dowries. In those days, a young woman needed a dowry to attract an offer of marriage. As their financial situation grew desperate, the father realized that the only way to ensure the survival of his children was to sell them into servitude. At least that way they would have enough to eat. When news of the family's plight reached Nicholas, he at once set about thinking of a way to help them. He remembered Jesus' teaching that, quote, when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving will be in secret. Matthew 6, 3 and 4. He soon came up with a plan. That night, he put several gold coins into a small bag and started out for the home of the father and the three daughters. The hour was late. The streets were deserted when he arrived. Inside the house, the family was sleeping. Nicholas crept to a window, reached through, and dropped the bag of gold. Some say that it landed in a shoe, others in a stocking that had been left hanging to dry. Then he hurried away before anyone saw him. The next morning, the family discovered the bag of gold. Weeping with joy and astonishment, they fell to their knees to thank God for the generous gift. Not only did they have money to live on for some time, but there was enough to provide a generous dowry for the oldest daughter, and she was soon married. When Nicholas saw how much happiness his secret gift had caused, he decided the second daughter must have a dowry too. He went to the house at night as before and dropped a second bag through the window. The next morning brought more tears of joy and astonishment and more thanks to God for the miraculous gift. The second daughter soon had her dowry and was married. The father dared to hope that his third daughter would also receive a gift that would allow her to marry. But now he was determined to find out who the earthly angel who had saved them might be. Night after night, he stayed up waiting and watching. 
Finally, late one night, just as he concluded that their mysterious benefactor had deserted them, a bag of gold came flying through the window. The man rushed out of the house, ran after the shadowy figure that was hurrying away, and caught it by the cloak. When he recognized Nicholas, he fell to his knees, began to kiss his hands that had helped his family so graciously. Nicholas asked him to stand, told him to thank God instead, and begged the father not to tell anyone the secret of who had left the gold. Despite his longing for anonymity, Nicholas's act of generosity set him on the path to becoming the world's famous, most famous gift giver. End of quote. Now, isn't that a fantastic story? And in fact, that story comes to us from a heartwarming book from William Bennett titled The True St. Nicholas, Why He Matters to Christmas. And I just love a great story well told, don't you? And boy, doesn't Mr. Bennett retell the true story of St. Nicholas very, very well. And that great story begs for more questions to be asked and answered. For example, where did Nicholas grow up? Who was his family? And what position did Nicholas have in the early church? And in fact, why does this guy who sounds like a good person, why does he matter to us in the 21st century? Well, these are all good questions, good questions indeed. But let us answer the last question first. Why does Nicholas, born in the 4th century, matter to us in the 21st century? Let's go back to the book. Quote, why bother with the history of St. Nicholas? For one thing, he his is a fascinating story. Its sheer vastness of scale is astounding. It stretches from the crossroads of Europe, Asia, Africa, to the Americas and beyond. It crosses oceans, deserts, frozen Arctic climes. This is an adventure tale complete with emperors, knights, villains, shipwrecks, kidnappings, treasure, and dark dungeons. And the aid age old struggle of good against evil, of right against might. But there is a larger reason to remember St. Nicholas. He matters to Christmas. This saintly man who lived so long ago has come to influence one of the holiest seasons and the most beloved holidays. This influence that has come across so many centuries is kind of a miracle. It's evidence of God's love. If the reputation he left behind means anything, we know there was something remarkable about this holy man. For hundreds of years, his name has been invoked, his deeds recounted. His shadow falls across epochs. End of quote. Yes, I think we can all agree that Nicholas, that miraculous gift giver, has certainly influenced many people in cultures all over the world. Just think of all the kids down through the ages that grew up with a certain twinkle in the eye as they heard the tales of this mysterious yet very blessed man who visits you during Christmas time. Yes, there would be different versions in different cultures, but Nicholas was or is the universal archetype. 
He transcends all cultures, all peoples. See, you can even say he represents the same archetype as the God-made man coming in swaddling clothes and laying in a manger. But getting back to our questions, who is Nicholas? Where did he grow up? What was his family like? And what was his life like after this event? Well, to be frank, we don't have much to go on, as scholars down through the centuries have tried to piece together this story. But we do know about the places he grew up and what the times were like that he would have grown up into. And Mr. Bennett tells a wonderful story about just that. So let's go back to the book to hear it from him directly. Like many good things, this story begins with a mother's prayer. During the days of the Roman Empire in a province called Lycia, and what is now the country of Turkey, a husband and a wife longed for a child. Thanophiles and Nona, their names are said to have been. Their home was Patera, a flourishing town at the mouth of the river Xanthios at the, on the Mediterranean coast a place where the forested hills sloped down to the clear blue sea. Thanophiles and Nona were a well-to-do couple. Perhaps they inherited land and money. Thanophanes may have run a prosperous trade in cloth or milled grains. History does not tell us. We only know that, according to the one old chronicle, that they were people of, quote, substantial lineage, holding property enough without superfluity. Their comfortable lives were troubled by one great unhappiness. Though they had been married for many years, they had never managed to have children. As time passed, they wept and waited, but no child came. Still, Nona refused to give up hope. Instead, she did something very wise. She prayed. Like Hannah in the first book of Samuel in the Bible, she poured out her soul to God asking him to remember her. It must have seemed something like a miracle when late in life, after so many hopes and tears, Nona's prayer was answered around the year A.D. 280 with the birth of a son. She surely recalled how Hannah, who was finally blessed with the boy Samuel, had vowed to give, quote, give him unto the Lord all the days of his life comes to us from 1 Samuel 1.11. You see, there's nothing like a mother's ongoing prayer. We read about this at St. Augustine's mother, praying fervently for her child to come to the faith. And here again, we read about Nona, praying like Hannah from the first book of Samuel. Heartfelt prayers to God are always answered. Let's go back to the book. Quote, Patera was a good town to grow up in, a bustling center of trade full of sites for a, board, a boy to explore. Wide avenues lined with columns and paved with stones led from the town gates, past houses, shops, and temples to the busy Agoria, the market square. Beneath brightly colored awnings, merchants arranged their goods, grapes, olives, cheese, herbs, dyed wood, dyed wool and cotton, pottery, jewelry, leather, glassware, 
skins of wine, the shoppers who haggled with vendors and the men who swapped news in the shade of roofed colonnades all spoke Greek, the dominant language of that part of the world. Young Nicholas must have spent many hours listening to the shouts of the tradesmen advertising their wares and the talk of women filling jugs with water at the public fountains. As he roamed the streets of Patera, the boy saw reminders of both his proud Greek heritage and imperial Rome's wide reach. A temple to Apollo drew travelers, hoping to divine the truth from the future of a revered oracle. The great assembly building, where officials from all over Lycia met to debate, could seat 1,000 people. Elegant baths with rooms covered by marble tiles dotted the city. A massive monument with three Roman arches built in honor of a governor of Lycia supported an aqueduct that brought water to Patera's inhabitants. On a hillside near the sea stood the favorite spot of many Paterans, the amphitheater. More than a dozen tiers of stone seats rose above a raised stage where actors spoke and sang their lines. The crowds that gathered to enjoy comedies, tragedies, and dances could be a rowdy bunch, stomping their feet when they pleased and throwing olive pits when disappointed by the show. End of quote. What a fascinating time to grow up in the Turkish land of Lycia. Nicholas certainly would have studied grammar and arithmetic, most likely writing with a stylus on a wooden tablet covered with beeswax, as they did back then. Nicholas's parents had embraced the new and growing religion spread from the remote part of Judea in the eastern Mediterranean, just south of them. In this rumble, rough-and-tumble world, the story of a carpenter from Galilee had won converts with his proven miracles and his story of the resurrection. After being killed on a cross, but more importantly, he seemed to change people even nowadays. Well, Bennett tells us, Quote, his message brought new hope to believers. Christianity welcomed all races and classes into a community that offered refuge in this tempest-tossed world. Unquote. Certainly Nicholas, growing up, would have heard and read the words of our Lord, read the words of our Lord to the famous St. Paul. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? For after that, that same St. Paul would have visited Patera on one of his most famous journeys and left behind a small group of converts to that newly formed Christian faith. The members of that community and church would have certainly been proud of the fact that they had St. Paul that visited their city. Certainly they would have shared that story far and wide to their congregates and fellows passers-by. Let's go back to the book. Nicholas's parents taught him early on that Christianity served God, that early on that Christians served God by serving the less fortunate. In an age when the general rule of existence was to fend for yourself or die, a Christian's duty was different, to help others. Churches organized to care for the poor and the sick, See how those Christians love one another. The pagans marveled. 
At times, it was dangerous to be a Christian. The Roman Empire, though vast and mighty, faced desperate problems. A series of weak emperors, outbreaks of plagues, generals who fought each other for power, attacks by barbarians along the empire's borders. When officials needed scapegoats to take the brunt of public frustrations, it was always too easy to single out the Christians who refused to worship the old gods of Rome and sacrifice to the emperor. But if being a Christian brought occasional scorn and danger, it also brought immeasurable rewards. As Nicholas grew, his faith grew. The old writers tell us that he began to spend less time following boyish pursuits and more time pondering the message that Jesus had brought to the world. And as he approached manhood, he discovered that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace. End of quote. Nicholas had grown physically and spiritually. He was becoming a man. He was becoming a good Christian man. And I'm sure his parents couldn't have been more proud of the man he was becoming. But then tragedy happened. We don't know how old Nicholas was when this happened. The history of the time period certainly is naturally scarce. And all of Nicholas's writings were never preserved. Let's go back to the book. Then something happened that surely must have tested Nicholas's faith. A plague swept through Lycia, passing from town to town, cutting down whole families, striking rich and poor alike. Thenophanes and Nona were among the dead. Nicholas, left alone in the world, went to live with an uncle in a monastery to recover from the blow. Slowly, bewilderment and despair gave way to acceptance. He asked God for strength and discovered that it came to him. And as he healed, he resolved to train for the priesthood. As a first step, he made up his mind to give away his possessions, including the inheritance left to him by his parents. This decision gave rise to the most beloved story about Nicholas. End of quote. Nicholas, left alone in the world, without the people that loved him most, his parents. What a blow for a young man to endure. Nicholas went to live with an uncle who was an abbot at a nearby monastery. He ended up becoming that priest he had always wanted to be. And then he became a bishop. And eventually he became a saint. How great is that? Some records have him attending the Council of Nicaea in 325, but there was no mention of him saying anything, so we're really not sure. But as we just heard, Nicholas's real fame would go on to be the most beloved story of generosity that has inspired millions, if not trillions, of people throughout the world, down through the ages, in the spirit of giving, in the spirit of becoming a saint. His example, especially during this time leading up to the birth of Christ, has been immeasurable across the ages. And perhaps, as we close this Mojo Minute during Christmas, 
Nicholas's favorite scripture verse was perhaps this one. 2 Corinthians 9, 6-7. The verse says this, quote, The point is this, He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do as he has made up his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And again, we don't know if that would have been his favorite verse, but certainly we could speculate. Because after all, that verse was written by St. Paul, who had visited his hometown of Lycia. So certainly there would have been a fondness for any of Paul's writings. And perhaps, we don't know, but just perhaps, a young St. Francis of Assisi, growing up just across the Aegean Sea, from where this St. Nicholas had lived and become a saint, perhaps St. Francis of Assisi would hear of this bishop's great example later in the 12th century when he grew up, when he lived. And it would have helped him to create one of the most remembered lines offered in the church from St. Francis of Assisi's prayer. Quote, For it is in the giving that we receive It is in the pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in the dying that we are born to eternal life. Well done, St. Nicholas, for your example leads the way for us this Christmas week. And so, my friends, in the spirit of Paul Harvey, now you know the rest of the story. Merry Christmas. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this Theory to Action podcast. Be sure to check out our show page at teammojoacademy.com, where we have everything we discussed in this podcast, as well as other great resources. Until next time, keep getting your mojo on. Are you a voracious reader who yearns for a deeper understanding of your favorite books? Or perhaps you're a busy professional seeking to enrich your knowledge, but short on time. The Mojo Academy 2.0 is your perfect solution. Our revamped service now includes beautifully designed monthly written reviews and PDF format to accompany our popular audio reviews. These aren't just summaries. These are comprehensive and insightful explorations of each book, packed with the actual quotes from the book, to enhance your understanding. 
With usually six to nine pages per review, they are perfect reference tools to take your learning to the next level. Get your free Mojo Academy review in written format at teammojoacademy.com or click on today's show notes for that free link. Again, teammojoacademy.com or click on today's show notes and you will see the link for the free written review. Get yours today.